Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. This afternoon, I was standing on a Bangladeshi island in the middle of a wide river estuary separating this country from Myanmar. There was a span of about 20 miles in which I could see at least eight villages in flames. Hundreds of thousands have left their homes in Myanmar where they'd faced the military offensive following claims that Rohingya militants were guilty of attacking police checkpoints there. More than half a million Rohingya Muslims have now fled across the border into Bangladesh. Myanmar's treatment of the Rohingya people is a textbook example of ethnic cleansing the United Nations Human Rights Chief has declared as he denounced the violence in Rakhine State in the strongest possible terms. The latest wave of the Rohingya crisis has been one of the tragedies of 2017. I'm Lucy Lamble, and on this episode of the Global Development Podcast, I'm finding out what's happening in the region, what's been done, and asking, is there anything more we can be doing? I'm joined by Dr. Champa Patel, head of the Asia programme at Chatham House, an independent policy institute based in London, and Asif Saleh from BRAC, the largest non-governmental development organisation globally, known especially for their work on anti-poverty solutions in Bangladesh, and increasingly beyond. As if you're in London for a few days now, but you're fresh from Cox's Bazaar right down in the south of Bangladesh, uh, what's going on? It's just uh, when you when you go there and you basically see the sort of the abject degradation of humanity, it's, it's extremely painful. I mean, just to see that human beings can do something like this to another human beings just because of uh, their race or religion or ethnicity, it's hard to fathom at that scale. I mean, it's a very small piece of land where they're all at now. I mean, close to a million people in this small land, uh, and you... you get a sense of that once you go there that how massive this tragedy and crisis is. And have the numbers slowed down at all? We have close to a million already over here so it's almost the entire population of that area and um, there were a lot of local people initially who were helping out uh, because they were it took a while for organizations to mobilize. Uh, now the organizations have come in, government is also trying to organize. So initially there was a huge amount of people, women and children coming in droves with uh, trauma and everybody had a horrifying story to tell without any shelter. They came when, d- during the monsoon time as well. So it was, it was unbelievable horror and, and just to kind of deal with that initial trauma, we had to mobilize a lot of resources quickly. 
So right now we are a certain amount of system has come in, like there's regular food distribution happening. And uh, initially all the organizations who were working there are trying desperately to uh, stop the cholera emergency. You know, uh, there was a massive health emergency there. Champa, could you just put this in context for us? This obviously isn't the first wave of people that have arrived on the shore here. What's different this time? I think what's different, what we've seen from the August uh, ASA attacks on the border posts and security posts, is the scale of the crisis. So we've had exoduses before, three major exoduses in the 70s, in the 90s, 2012, and a minor sort of uh, displacement, relatively speaking, last year. But nothing of this scale has occurred before. And I think, you know, this is unique in terms of a history of persecution and discrimination against the Rohingya. So in terms of where we go from here, it's so critical to ensure that they are political and long-term solutions. So who are the Rohingya? How have they found themselves in this awful situation? So independent research has shown that the Rohingya can trace their, you know, lineage back to uh, several centuries, have been there when it was the Arakan Kingdom. Uh, But if you look at the modern state of Burma that came into being in 1948, the Rohingya have been disenfranchised from the very beginning, from the very constitution that was set up then. So from then, over the successive decades, laws have been, you know, propagated that gradually strip away all their rights. And it really came to a head with the 1982 Citizenship. Act, which essentially deprived them of all nationality. And literally with the stroke of a pen, they became stateless overnight. And that's meant big consequences for access to education, for health, for being able to move around? Yeah, it's really hard to overstate just how bad the level of entrenched discrimination is. The ability to not marry freely, restrictions on how many children you can have, restrictions on your movement. And this is not even recently, this is historical going back. So the level of persecution that we're talking about is deep-seated, it's rooted in culture as well as society. It's not just a political problem. It's a cultural societal problem. And it's going to be very difficult to turn this around. For those of us outside the region, we've been watching regular news bulletins of burning villages, people fleeing with nothing, alarming-looking water crossings. You know, we're hearing of thousands dead and hundreds of thousands displaced. With the majority of the Rohingya population apparently now actually in Bangladesh, it's a real catalogue of misery. What kind of stories are people telling you as they arrive? The stories were so uh, horrifying. Children uh, being thrown into live fire houses full of women after getting raped they were locked down and the whole house getting burned down and and there's a, such trauma there i mean when our workers are going in and just talking to some of these women because we also have uh, trauma counselors who are going there and we have also trained our health workers on on basic counseling and and they can talk for hours and then they tell us that okay it actually helps them to just talk about their stories It is not the intention of the Myanmar government to apportion blame or to abnegate responsibility. We condemn all human rights violations and unlawful violence. We are committed to the restoration of peace, stability, and rule of law throughout the state. The security forces have been instructed to adhere strictly to the code of conduct in carrying out security operations to exercise all due restraint and to take full measures to avoid collateral damage and the harming of innocent civilians. 
We've had an apparently underwhelming series of comments from Myanmar, from the de facto leader, Aung San Suu who'd be perhaps one of the better known voices over here. We've heard language like concern and wanting to understand why people are moving. The UN, on the other hand, have described it as a, a textbook case of ethnic cleansing. What should we make of these uh, big discrepancies? Well, I think, you know, lots of organizations on the ground have now documented evidence to such a degree that it's clear that there are acts that have been committed that constitute either crimes against humanity or genocide. So I think, you know, a question of what label we want to give to it is in a way uh, distracting because we focus then about the label and not about what's happening. So I think it's clear that the scale of the violations is immense and there's a duty to act on that and make sure that it's resolved. The focus on Aung San Suu Kyi is understandable. You know, the West made a saint out of her, but she's a political figure. And at the end of the day, within Myanmar, the military control 25% of all seats and the three key ministries of home affairs and border. So they are responsible for the military operations in Rakhine. But how many people know who Minong Line is, the commander in chief? So in some respects, I feel that the Myanmar military is literally able to get away with murder because there's so much focus paid to Aung San Suu Kyi, who doesn't necessarily have influence or control those ministries. Regional actors seem to be very slow to be stepping up, and obviously we've got huge players, India, China, you know, close by. What, what have they actually said? It's a really interesting range of responses within the region. So if you look at India, for example, on the one hand, it has economic considerations. It's investing heavily in Myanmar. It sees it as a land corridor into Southeast Asia, but also an opportunity to develop the Northeast of India as well. So there are economic considerations they're trying to balance. But there's also security concern for them there. The consulate that's based in Sitwe, the capital of Rakhine, they've been monitoring the movements of transnational Islamist groups. They have concerns about the influence of Pakistan-based groups or Bangladeshi-based groups. So in that respect, they see this as an emerging security concern that could also affect them because there are many Rohingya settled in India, primarily in the Jammu Kashmir region, which is a source of concern to them. But they should be doing more. This is an issue that actually affects them. So, you know, after um, I think Bangladesh raised concerns, they are playing a humanitarian role, but they have a political role to play and they haven't really stepped up to the plate to play that role yet. China is slightly different. China has a major stake in Myanmar, but is not directly affected by the refugee flows. So it's a mainly extractive relationship. You know, Myanmar's largest trading partner is China. And China has huge investments in the region, so it needs stability. But I think one must remember with Indian or Chinese diplomacy, it's never going to be public. You're not going to get international condemnation. You're not going to get statements. They're not going to publicly admonish either Aung San Suu Kyi or the government. Temper, it's a huge thing that Bangladesh is finding itself responsible for at the moment. A huge number of people and obviously a very sensitive situation. How has Bangladesh's response been seen regionally and what's the country saying publicly? I think, you know, what Bangladesh has done is incredibly generous. To host refugees on such a scale is no easy matter. So I think in that respect, the international community now needs to step up to the plate. The UN humanitarian plan is only about 30% funded at the moment. So the money has to be put to where the priorities are in order to meet the needs that are so pressing at the moment. But in parallel, I think there's a need for a roadmap to peace. Part of that is looking at repatriation of refugees, ensuring that it's voluntary, that it's fair, that it's transparent, the criteria by which we're asking people to return to. But I don't think you can ask people to return back to a state of ongoing statelessness. 
it's insane to think you can say to people, please go back. Nothing's going to change. It will just the displacement will just happen again. There will be another cycle of violence. So there has to be a political consensus that the statelessness issue has to be addressed has to be addressed. We have to learn the lessons from history. The Palestinians are stateless people who have not been able to return. And there's a danger here that if this becomes protracted, that's where you'll see the potential for radicalization, for recruitment. So I think in that sense, there has to be a legal pathway to citizenship. But at the same time, Myanmar has to take responsibility because sending people back, even if they're legal citizens, if they're still going to experience Islamophobia, if they're still going to experience discrimination, then we have to ensure that they are livelihoods, that they can live fulfilling lives, that they have access to education, to health services, that they're seen as a viable, legitimate part of Myanmar's future. And I think that's a long-term project. So back to the humanitarian plan. As if you're working with various UN bodies and protections being a big theme, What about the vulnerability of female-headed households? We've been hearing terrible things that have been occurring, even in the camps themselves. Yes, and uh, this is becoming a major growing concern. About uh, roughly 25% of the households are female-led. And because there's such a large number of women, and, and basically there is no law enforcement there, right? And so we need to figure out a way where some level of protection can be ensured. So... Um, we are hearing about stories of abuses. We are basically also, um, you may know that uh, that area is a border area is known for uh, drug smuggling and trafficking already. So there is an established network there. And uh, in, uh, in some of the news media, it came out that 10 to 15 women on a per, per day, they are being smuggled outside to the city. And, and, uh, and the price has dropped to like five pounds per person. What happens is uh, the desperation and vulnerability gets into such a high proportion. And when we see also horror stories where sometimes parents actually sell their daughters as well. So what we are trying to do is that uh, working with various UN agencies is that we are creating a group of community mobilizers who's going to be delivering some of these messages to these people. We are also establishing uh, community groups who are going to be working as a kind of a protection mechanism in terms of any sort of uh, abuse happens. And they are the first group which gets notified. And then also there's a law enforcement notification happens. And also creating some very safe and protected space for adolescent girls, uh, where there will be area where they think it's a safe space. But at the same time, there would be also some level of counseling that needs to happen. uh, As a majority of these women are still very, very uh, shocked and traumatised. And so, tangibly, people are receiving support with food, with shelter. What else? What kind of health needs do they have? So, what's happening? Water uh, and sanitation, obviously, uh, warm clothes, blankets, mattresses. uh, So, all of those are needed right now. And and for particularly for women also, in terms of giving them access and safe space, protection space to toilets where there's a lock there is a light uh, solar lights so we are also giving solar lights uh, torchlight we are giving a dignity pack to them uh, so all of those are uh, needed and there are a lot of cultural taboos as well I mean uh, a lot of women don't want to do or use any contraceptives whatsoever because uh, you know we have about close to 50,000 pregnant women there. And a lot of these households actually have many children. And if you ask them, they basically say this is one way for them to be protected from getting raped by the military, uh, to be remain pregnant all the time. 
I mean, we found one mother with 19 children as well uh, in one household. And now also there, there are some uh, religious sensibilities. So we're trying to make them and have the have those behavior changing messaging uh, using the community people from their own community kind of sensitizing them so that's also a bit of a longer term game if there's one thing the international community or even individuals uh, could be doing now to make the situation better what would it be yeah i think there are multiple challenges one one big challenge we're seeing is that the host community is getting very impatient and because the initial sympathy that there was there is starting to dissipate right and with the price of essentials going up the wage going down that all those they're they're seeing hitting with the economic impact and so there needs to be something a program large-scale program that will also need to start for the host community because they're also not better off i mean they're quite poor themselves it's one of the poorest areas in bangladesh uh, so all of this um, requires resources, and Bangladeshi government doesn't have them. Funding and resourcing these initiatives is very, very crucial. Um, more people need to know about what actually happened and so that uh, they can come ahead because it's actually, I mean, people in Bangladesh have taken on this responsibility, but in the longer-term cases, international um, uh, community uh, and Myanmar government needs to take the responsibility. So uh, if you can mobilize, I mean, for us, we actually budgeted about $19 million for our initial six months response. We have mobilized about $11 million. We're still $8 million short. Um, but we're going to continue our work as uh, we continue to mobilize resources as well. In terms of solutions, I think, yes, absolutely. Funding is so essential to make sure these services, you cannot stress enough how important it is that that funding is there. But I think, you know, what people can do is put pressure on their political representatives. The US, the EU are looking at sanctions. The UK is already playing a role in terms of providing through DFID aid services, but it could be doing more. So I think the international community needs to find a consensus on the way forward and not just deal with the humanitarian crisis, but start thinking about long-term political solutions as well. And there is an onus there on countries in the region to do more. And I think pressure could be put on them to make sure that they're playing their role as well. Well, that's it for this week. A huge thanks to Champa and to Asif for joining us. The humanitarian response continues and the Disaster Emergency Committee appeal is ongoing. Please subscribe and review us on all your favourite podcatchers or join the discussion on Twitter. Just search Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's podcasts at theguardian.com. Till next time, I've been Lucy Lamble, the producer is Gabriella Jones, and this was the Global Development Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 